Hello Blazers, welcome to episode 82 of UAB Green and Told, original release Monday, October 10th, 2022. UAB Green and Told gives us a chance to share stories from members of the UAB community. Want to listen into previous episodes? Check us out at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold on Spotify or the Apple Podcast app. While there, leave a written review so more people can find us. I'm Greg Berry, a UAB alum and director of communications in the UAB Office of Alumni Affairs. Let's face it. The billion-dollar bourbon business is booming. While the bluegrass state accounts for 95% of the popular spirit, 5% is distilled across the U.S. For Brian Raven, he's part of that 5%. The alumnus is one of the country's many craft distillers, working on creating rum, vodka, and yes, bourbon. While he's been part of the industry for years, as he'll share, making the leap into distilling isn't one that he took lightly. You you don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to build a new distillery and then do it the next day. There's so much government regulation and things that you have to get in place that it's extremely complicated. As Brian will explain, it's a process to craft a perfect creation. And surprisingly, while there's plenty of science involved, there's a whole lot of luck as well, especially when it comes to aging bourbon for years. The the fear or the concern of, what if this doesn't taste right? Or what if it doesn't work out? Like how much money am I investing in, in producing this product that you know, maybe four or five years down the road, I'm not happy with. While his distillery is a new venture, the entrepreneurial spirit isn't. Brian will reveal how he's always been trying to discover doing something new. When I look back over my life, I've always been the kid who was out, you know, mowing the yard or having the Kool-Aid stand or having Brian's bar. I like, I've always been doing something entrepreneurial. Craft distillers have a passion for what they do. These small local businesses produce limited products from barrel to bottling. Brian Rabin is a member of the growing number of craft distillers. With a cozy tasting room for guests to sip craft cocktails and spirits, Brian's distillery is off to a good start. While it may be his first real bar, he actually began his entrepreneurial spirit as a kid growing up in Pelham, Alabama. We had a spare bedroom and I turned it into a bar. And I would walk up the hill to the shop of snack and buy candy. And none of the kids in the neighborhood wanted to do that because the hill was so large and so hard to walk. Um, so I would bring candy back and I would sell, resell candy from the shop of snack and, and Brian's bar. And the girls next door my, were my waitresses. Uh, some of the kids down the road had a band. And we would actually, we would create flyers and we'd put them in people's mailboxes and we'd attract all the neighborhood kids. So I had a bar since I was a really little boy. So how old were you when you established the first Brian's Bar? <laughs> I, I don't know exactly, but probably like like 10 or 11. What did your parents think of you at that time? Well, they were um, supportive of it. The only time I got in trouble, I probably shouldn't say this, but my dad told me specifically one Easter morning, he's like, you cannot have the bar open today. And one of my regulars came and knocked on the window and she was like pleading with me. She was like, can I please come in and get some candy? And I'm like... I just couldn't, like, the entrepreneur in me wouldn't, was, <laughs> was overriding everything else. And uh, I sold to her. And then I got in a lot of trouble with my dad. He, he, uh, he took all the money, the profits from that day, and we, we donated it to the church. So I, I got in big trouble for that. <laughs> <laughs> At least it was a happy ending right there. So where does that entrepreneurial spirit come from? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's so ironic to me because it wasn't, until a couple of years ago during the pandemic that I really considered myself to be an entrepreneur, even though I've been in an entrepreneurial pursuit for most of my life. 
Uh, another story, when I was in seventh grade, we went to Hawaii and I noticed all this fruit growing on the trees around us, so papayas and coconuts and mangoes and all these other things. So I went and harvested them. I created a stand right by this public beach access where people were coming. And I started selling like fruit uh, when I was in Hawaii, at, you know, in seventh grade. So when I look back over my life, I've always been the kid who was out, you know, mowing the yard or having the Kool-Aid stand or having Brian's bar. I like, I've always been doing something entrepreneurial. So you take that entrepreneurial spirit and you wind up at Auburn or Alabama and you start with computers though. Well, what did you want to do when you first started your collegiate experience? This actually is a little bit of part of my distilling story. So I had this amazing teacher at Pelham, uh, Miss Richardson, and she taught me chemistry and AP chemistry. And I had an absolute love for, for chem lab and all the, all the science. And so I went off to college to be a chemical engineer. In my initial classes, I had a drafting class and, and the guy from the co-op office came in and he explained how a co-op program works, where you work a semester, go to school a semester. And I just love the idea of that. Chemical engineering was extremely competitive for co-op jobs. There weren't a lot at the time, but um, I kind of put the word out in the network and uh, my, my brother's best friend's dad worked at Southern Company. And he said, hey, we would love to bring you on as a co-op. However, it's not in your field. It's gonna be more computer related. And I, honestly, I wanted a co-op job so bad. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm just gonna take it and see what happens. And so I got in there um, with Talal Murab and, and these other guys in Birmingham and they just opened up a whole new world to me. And it was so rewarding to be able to write a few lines of code, compile them, run them, and then immediately see like what you had created. And then to be able to solve business problems for people and watch them use something you made. So I, I kind of put the whole chemistry thing aside and fell in love with computers because I was able to enable business people to get work done in a more positive, better way for them and just fell in love with, with computers for quite a while. At that point when you were going through college, what did you want to do? Um, I wanted to be a software developer after I kind of stumbled around a bit. So I went from chemical engineering to computer engineering to computer science. And then when I got into computer science, I'm like, yeah, this, this software development thing is for me. I'm, I'm going to go be a, a, so a professional software developer. You wind up graduating from Auburn. Um, you got your bachelor's degree there. You took a few years off before your UAB story really began. What did you do in those four years graduating from Auburn and then enrolling in Birmingham? Uh, at that point in my life, I was really kind of cutting my teeth as a software developer. I went to a local shop called a Doozer Software and Sandy Six and Ron Perkins and Barry Sykes really started mentoring me and teaching me how to write code. And then I went over to uh, Infinity Insurance there in Birmingham and uh, became a senior software engineer. So at that point in time, I was I was reading a million books, you know, getting online and researching and writing as much code as possible. Even, even then, uh, when I transitioned jobs to uh, Infinity, I was actually still moonlighting with Doozer on the side. So I was, I was working like around the clock coding uh, and just trying to learn my craft as best I could. After four years, you made the decision to become a blazer. You enrolled at UAB to get a master's degree. What was the goal? Why did you come back to school? Why further that education? Well, uh, something unusual happened to me when I was at 
at uh, Infinity Insurance within a few months, they tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, we see leadership potential in you and we would like to offer you a programming team leader job. And I was like, whoa, are you kidding me? Like, you want me to be a manager now? And I, I, I'd always thought maybe, you know, 10 years, 15 years down the road, that might be something I would do. But I'm not one to turn down an opportunity either. So I did a lot of soul searching and I accepted it. And then they said, hey, um, as part of your management training, we would be willing to sponsor you to go through uh, this program at UAB called Information Engineering and Management. And uh, another guy in the department was going to do it at the same time. And I'm like, yeah, um, I met Dale Callahan, who's over the program. We talked about it. I just fell in love with the idea of what they were doing there. And I, I dove right in. What was the program like in the early millennium? Well, it, it's so funny because I ended up getting a master's in electrical engineering. So people think I was like writing circuits and everything. But that, that would be the, the furthest from the truth. Um, this program, honestly, it's about finding yourself and finding out who you are and kind of liberating you from, I don't know, societal pressures and helping you get on point with what you really want to do in your life. So it mainly focused on uh, technology leadership and entrepreneurship. And over those two years, I was in this incredible ecosystem with like-minded people. I was um, networking throughout the community. I was expanding myself personally. I was learning skills and, and ideas that would help me for years and years and years to come. And honestly, that's like one of the, I think it was one of the most pivotal life-changing programs I've ever been through in my life. Obviously, throughout this entire time, you're still in Birmingham. You're still in the metro area. Once you graduate from UAB, things slowly start to change for you. You don't wind up in Birmingham. You're splitting time between two different regions of the country, Salt Lake, down at the Gulf. Why that change? What led to that? So it, it was really interesting because when I left the program, I had this like burning desire to be an entrepreneur and I just needed to go like find the idea. And I, I kind of developed a skiing addiction and uh, I kind of needed to fuel that. My, my wife noticed this pattern. She's like, every year you're away from me longer. Like first year it's two weeks and then the next week it's three weeks and the next month uh, year it's four weeks. She's like, you're spending like 50 days in a hotel room to go skiing. Why don't we just move somewhere where you can come home to me at night uh, rather than going home to a hotel room? So we it was really hard for us. And we had to do a lot of soul searching for, for a couple of years. But we committed to moving to Salt Lake um, primarily so we could see what life was like when you got to ski 100 days a year. Uh, it's pretty amazing, by the way. <laughs> And then when, when we got out to Salt Lake, I started missing the beach. Um, I'd always, as a kid, literally my entire life, every summer spent you know at least a week down in Florida at the beach. It was just part of life. It was heaven to me. And I'm like, you know, wouldn't it be amazing to, to buy a place down there as well? So in 2015, I, I bought a place at the beach and it was, it was a stretch. It was very scary. I, you know, Grew up in a very middle-class uh, home and having two homes at that point was like, wow, this is, this is the scariest thing I've ever done, but ended up being one of the best things I've ever done. How did you balance your career and all that fun? Because at this point, you're also working to pay for all of the mortgages, all of the fun, the skiing, the beach time, all that. 
Well, at that point, I'd left corporate America and I was my own boss. Um, and one thing that really changed for me when I became my own boss was it was a lot easier to work extreme hours and extremely hard. And I would work extremely hard and play extremely hard. I probably made some sacrifices. I've, I haven't really had as big of a social network as a lot of people. I tend to have a few really, really close friends and, and not, um, you know, not having a large group of friends. So, you know, there was, there were some aspects of my life that probably got sacrificed, but I was working at, at an extremely fast pace for a large number of hours. And that was fueling the, the finances to allow me to, to live the lifestyle I was living. At some point along the way, bourbon kind of entered the mix. When did you become a, a bourbon guy? Well, actually, that kind of ties back to the beach. Um, so the way it would work is that we would go and we'd be with all the aunts and uncles. And what they would do is they'd get out on the beach and they would drink Coors Light all day long. But when they came in, they would drink bourbon. So as a kid, I always watched, you know, the adults come in and have a bourbon as like the sun was setting. And so it was kind of a rite of passage for me. Like after I turned 21, being able to sit down with my dad and my uncles and, and have a bourbon, it was like, you know, it's like, okay, so now you're a man, like, and, and not only that, you're like having this amazing, like male bonding experience. And so, you know, at that point I started, um, I was traveling a lot. I started, or I guess the last few years traveling a lot, the, getting the opportunity to walk into different liquor stores in different states, always um, putting, you know, one or two bottles in my suitcase and coming back. And I've amassed obviously a, quite a collection at this point, um, but it, it really started with, with, with family. <laughs> Do you remember that first bourbon they had? Uh, Wild Turkey 101. So, you know, you got to imagine a 21-year-old palate um, who, who, you know, at that point is drinking like Natty Light and Ice House and, you know, really light beer that's not so great. You know, it was definitely a sipping and uh, not necessarily enjoying, but, uh, but, but definitely like feeling, feeling pretty special. When did you finally develop an appreciation to bourbon? In my later college years, my uh, my in-laws introduced me to dark beer. So it's like learning to drink beer all over again. And when I got into those like ultra hoppy, um, really dark beers, my palate, I think, started shifting. And my wife grew up in a foodie family. So it went, I went from eating like a skillet of hamburger helper beef stroganoff to like these, these gourmet meals that you wouldn't believe. And so um, really, I guess in my early 20s, early 30s, my palate really started shifting and I got an appreciation for the finer things in life. So, you know, really, I guess in my early 30s, like really got an appreciation for like any kind of spirit with a lot of flavor in it. We talked a little bit about as an eight, nine, 10 year old, you started a candy bar. You always had a bar. Did you ever think you'd really have a bar, a distillery to sell bourbon, spirits, things like that? Uh, up until last May, absolutely not. No, it, it never entered my mind that I would own a bar or have a distillery. It was uh, pretty fortuitous that it happened because it, it's pretty amazing right now. So what did happen? Because all of a sudden here you are in the distilling business and you're able to kind of harken back on the days of high school when you're going through chemistry and kind of putting things together. Yeah, I, I uh, have an amazing best friend, uh, Dr. Thomas Salto, who actually went to UAB too. He's a neonatal physician. He did his, his residency and fellowship at UAB. He had a dream of opening a distillery. 
And he had this dream for a very long time. It was something he talked about quite a bit. Um, so he has sugar-filled spirits down in Gonzales, Louisiana. He's in, in Baton Rouge area. And he invited me over there. I was, I was far back on the very opening day. And so from the very beginning, he has given me an insider look at what it's like to own a distillery. Um, he allowed me to get on his equipment and start distilling. We sampled through his products and his, his library. And at that point, I started getting curious. So I started buying books, started going to classes, and, it, and I started you know, exploring this new industry and saying, hey, uh, maybe this is something I can do. Uh, and, and just the whole challenge of it really intrigued me. Uh, not to mention the science. I was totally geeking out on the science aspect of it. So what goes into crafting a bourbon? Because really good bourbons, they're going to be well-aged. And here it is, you're you know helping out at a very young distillery before you even start yours. So what goes into the entire process to get things established? Well, it kind of ties back to those culinary roots I was telling you about. Like it, It's about bringing in the right ingredients and so as a craft producer, you really have access to some of the best and, and even local farmers who might have just a small crop of a certain thing that you need. So finding the best corn, finding the best malted barley, finding the best rye, even you know getting the, the best water that you can get, whether you're taking municipal water and filtering it or you're uh, sourcing in some of the spring water. Um, but it really starts with, with getting the best ingredients that you can and, you know, as a craft producer, that might actually cost more than what, a, you know, these big producers are using. But to me, that's where it starts. And, and one thing that really surprised me is just how sensory you need to be with all this. So involving your eyes and your nose and your mouth and um, just really getting to know those base raw ingredients. Like, what does that corn taste like? What does that rye taste like? Put it in your mouth, feel it, look at it, you know, just really getting personal with it, if that makes sense. So how long did you actually work alongside your friend, um, Dr. Saltow, before you realized, you know what, maybe I want to branch out onto my own and, and kind of start creating my own thing somewhere else, not in Baton Rouge? Yeah, it was really, I think, after the first year of working with him, I, I was there as much as I possibly could be. Still still had my, uh, my other software consulting company and you know had to balance all the things, but I was in Baton Rouge every time I could. And when I wasn't there, we were having conversations or emailing, or, and I was just continuing to learn. But I think one thing I learned in my technology career was drinking from the fire hose. And so it was very common for me to go into a brand new industry and learn it as good or better than the people working in it. And so I have this, uh, I've developed a skill to allow me to really rapidly assimilate a lot of new knowledge. So after the first year, I was extremely curious and not only that, this was obviously during the, the height of the pandemic. So I was like, I need diversification in my life. Like I'm an entrepreneur now. I need to be able to diversify my, my businesses. And um, one of the criteria I set for myself is I wanted to get into a new business that had a very high barrier to entry. You, you don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to build a new distillery and then do it the next day. There's so much government regulation and things that you have to get in place that is extremely complicated. Um, a lot of people advise me, they're like, it's going to take you two years to get your distillery open. I committed to doing the idea in May of last year. And by the end of November, I was open and selling to the public. So, yeah, I mean, in a half a year, all of a sudden, here you are putting out spirits. 
what was the first one to come across the line? What was the first one you released for 38 Distilling? Uh, actually, it was our bourbon. So we named each one of our, our bourbons after one of the beach communities here on 38. So we have Blue Mountain Beach Bourbon. Um, it was a source product we, we got from MGP. Um, obviously, as a brand new craft producer, you need some age on your bourbon. You can't just obviously can't make time fly. We don't have a time machine. So went out to the community, sourced this exceptional barrel of five-year-old. And then I put my own twist on it. I really spent a lot of time with the science of proofing. So proofing is bringing the proof down from barrel strength. Um, this one was in the barrel at 117. Well, it started at 120 and came down to 117 over time. But I started playing with it and saying, okay, so this has a mash bill of 60% corn, 36% rye and 4% malted barley. It's got a fair amount of rye in it. What happens at a lower proof? What happens at a higher proof? So I learned at a lower proof, the rye kind of gets muted and the corn really shines through. So you get a lot of sweetness from the corn. And then at a higher proof, the rye really pops. So you get this really, really spicy, uh, peppery um, flavors from the rye. So I thought it was so much fun to, to not only have a five-year-old barrel that was exceptional to start with, but then to express it at two different proofs to be able to show people just how much, you know, the distiller can, can change a product based on the decisions they make. With roughly a year under your belt with bourbons, I'm guessing you still want to make your own bourbon. And that's going to be a process because that's not something, like you said, that was a five-year bourbon that you're messing with. To get your own, you got to wait another two, three years just to even have one. So what's it like just the anticipation of all of that as you get excited and get ready to kind of do your own thing? Uh, it's actually a little, it, well, it, there's two sides to it. One is, like you said, like the, the kid waiting for Christmas. Um, I've already created some American single malt whiskey, and I've got that um, resting right now, waiting for some barrels to come in. Um, but, you know, just so much excitement and anticipation. But then there's also the, the, the fear or the concern of what if this isn't taste right or what if it doesn't work out like how much money am i investing in, in producing this product that you know maybe four or five years down the road i'm not happy with so um what i'm doing now is i'm, I'm hiring consultants i'm spending a lot of time again with my friend who's already got more experience than me and doing everything i can to try to put the best product that i can into the barrels once i eventually get them so that you know i can have that like christmas moment somewhere in the future even though you you have kind of this support system, you've done a lot of research, it's still a lot of crapshoot, as you just kind of alluded to, because you don't know what you're going to get down the road, do you? So you can buy the best barrels on the market from the best cooperage. You can get the best toast or char in them. Like you can do everything right. And every single barrel is going to taste radically different from the one next to it. So there's just, there's a certain amount of, um, I don't know if it's called luck or, you know, you do everything you can to set yourself up for success. But at the end of the day, there's still a very much mother nature component to this. And you don't know what you're going to get. Like it's, it's, uh, I guess to quote Forrest Gump, you know, <laughs> it's a box of chocolates, if you will. We talked a little bit about earlier before we even started recording. A lot of purists are going to say bourbon's Kentucky, but that's not necessarily the case. Is it? So how do you sell them on a Floridian bourbon made from a dude that's used to split time, still splitting time between Salt Lake, Utah and the coast here in Florida? 
Well, I'll tell you what, a couple of things you're going for us right now. One, bourbon is just hot and the demand for bourbon is off the charts. I was actually just up in Kentucky. Every single distillery in Kentucky has a major capital improvement project going on. They cannot construct enough capacity at the moment to fulfill demand. So everybody is just building, building, building. So right now people have a very strong desire for bourbon. And a lot of people are really getting a strong interest in craft producers. Um, craft distilling isn't quite where beer is. You know, craft beer is now pretty ubiquitous, but craft distilling is still a fairly new field, and uh, especially here in the South. So a lot of people are just now discovering craft producers. And I'll tell you what, I mean, 99% of the people who walk into our tasting room are just thrilled and super excited to try our bourbon. Um, they're very curious about what we're doing. And just the excitement of tasting something different and learning about what we did and why we did it is, is just, I'm seeing a lot of smiling faces, let me put it that way. Why is bourbon so hot? I mean, it's been trending upwards over the last few years and it just continues to gain popularity. You have a, a little bit of a um, network effect going on. You know, some of these bourbons that, you know, 10, 15 years ago were sitting on the bottom shelf and not even selling are now on allocation and you can't buy them. And if you buy them on the secondary market, you're, you're spending potentially thousands of dollars. So people have really discovered bourbon. I mean, go out on YouTube and Google it and just see show after show after show of people like tasting and talking about it. So I, I think the American palate is kind of waking up. And, and not only that, like, you know, producing, especially rye whiskey was, was very big before prohibition. And then prohibition put on the brakes um, to a lot of you know, spirits here in the United States. And we're just now starting to see some recovery. So I think part of it is like, this is a uniquely American thing. Bourbon can only be made in, in the United States. So you're not gonna get bourbon from any other, other place in the world. And so it's a little bit of like our heritage coming back. And I think it's also an interest in, you know, food and trends and, and flavors. And certainly people today are more curious about, you know, culinary pursuits and, and tastes and flavors and, palate and experience of, of having something. And I just think there's a lot of curiosity and, and even I've even noticed that people travel now to go and, you know, try new distilleries. I mean, look at the Kentucky bourbon trail. Now we've spoke a lot about bourbon, but 38 distilling has more than just that. You got rum, you got vodka. Does as much love have to go into those spirits as bourbon or it's just a completely different process? Every little product that we're doing now is, is done with a huge amount of passion. Um, I'm only putting out products that I'm extremely proud of. If anything isn't quite right, I'm either waiting or tweaking. And, uh, you know, I think that's, I, I, it's a common theme I hear from a lot of people. They're like, you're just totally alive with the passion of what you're doing. And it really shows like we can actually taste it coming out of the bottle. As a craft distiller, is the goal to keep 30A small or how do you want to grow the business? My, my first year, uh, somebody called it a, a mad scientist approach. Um, we have a tasting room here at the distillery. And we've also, because of the way Florida law changed last year, been granted the ability to sell at farmers markets. So we're really coming out grassroots and putting a wide array of products in front of the as many people as we can to really get a sense of what people's palate is like and what they appreciate. I mean, I can love something all day long, but if everybody else who tastes it hates it, it's not a, it's not a viable product for the market. 
So for right now, it's all about grassroots, getting in front of as many people as we can, whether they're coming in for a tour or coming in for a craft cocktail in the evening and letting people experience the product and finding what they like so that we can eventually adapt our product mix to be you know, something that, that's pleasing the majority of consumers. Um, we definitely would love to be in distribution by the end of this year. And we'd love for you to be able to find our products up and down Highway 30A. You know, that that's something hopefully towards the end of this year we'll start achieving. And then the more long-term vision is that, be, that having a 30A Stilling Coast Spirit is part of your vacation experience when you come down here to the beach, just like having maybe a a beach blonde from 30 uh, from Great and Brewing, and that we have some regional distributions so that if you're in Memphis or Nashville or Atlanta or Birmingham, you can go to your local liquor store, you know, pick up a bottle of our Blue Mountain Beach bourbon and and relive some of those vacation memories because you know scent memories are really powerful and um, they can kind of kind of transform you back. So you know, I love this idea of being able to relive that incredible experience you had on the beach with your with your uncle sharing a, a bourbon, you know, anytime, but by having a easy access to the bottles. That's Brian Raven. Brian earned a Master of Science in 2006 from the School of Engineering in Information Engineering Management. As we've discovered, he's the founder of 30A Distilling Company in Santa Rosa Beach, Florida. While he works with various spirits, He's also spirited about UAB and has a good idea of what it means to be a blazer. You know, I think there's a lot of like the Birmingham pride that goes along with, you know, being a blazer. So, you know, pride of your place. You know, I I was there, I experienced it. You know, I went downtown, I fought the traffic every day with everybody else. And, um, you know, Birmingham to me is also about the people. So being a, bla a blazer means being part of a community and being part of some really amazing friendships. I mean, there, there are people who I met in the IM program at UAB who will be lifelong friends. And then the other thing I think about is, is Dr. Callahan, who's over the program. Uh, I have never had a, a stronger bond and relationship with, with the professor as I have with him. I mean, we still talk at least once a year. So to me, a lot about being a blazer is about the place, the magic of Birmingham, but also just the people and, and the community. Be sure to listen into previous episodes of UAB Green and Told. Check out our website at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold. Have a story to share? Email me at greenandtold at uab.edu. Finally, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search UAB Alumni. Thanks for listening. And until next time, go Blazers.